Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Good Folk Podcast. Hello, folks. I am Spencer George. I am the creator and head of content here at Good Folk. If you subscribe to our newsletter, you see me in your inbox at least once, if not twice a week. If you are one of our paying subscribers, you can find everything about our newsletter at goodfolksonly.org. And today, I'm so excited to have here with us on the podcast a good friend of mine, a good friend of good folk, an all-around amazing artist, individual, human, author, Alexis Lawson. Alexis is someone that I have been so lucky over the years to get to know and just watch grow into an incredible talent. And I'm so excited to have this conversation with her today. Um, we're going to touch on quite a few things, talking about writing, talking about artistry, talking about North Carolina, working in rural communities, getting your work out there, the value of storytelling. So if any of you, and I believe many of you will be interested in those things, this is definitely a conversation you are going to want to listen to. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about Alexis now. Alexis is a poet, storyteller, and author of the poetry collection, The Beauty in My Bare Bones, published in 2019. It can be found on Amazon. She is very passionate about making the arts more accessible to youth while writing through the Black voice, incorporating her culture into narratives that otherwise may not see representation. She is currently a lifestyle and culture writer based in Raleigh, North Carolina, specializing in Black womanhood, mental health awareness, clean beauty, and realistic lifestyles. Her work has been published in the Charlotte Observer, Midnight and Indigo, Grown Magazine, Business Insider, and is forthcoming in a McGraw-Hill textbook, Color Block Magazine, and you can find all of that in her portfolio on her website, which we will, of course, link to in this podcast. Alexis also runs the Instagram account at Her Black Hand. We will link to that below as well. Um, she publishes all kinds of amazing resources, um, contests, her own work, spoken word poetry, everything she's up to. So I highly recommend giving it a follow. I was very lucky to meet Alexis um, in the same way that I met Victoria, if you listen to our last podcast. The three of us all worked together um, in the in inaugural cohort for our job at Artist Year, where we all taught um, separately in schools across rural North Carolina counties. Um, working with elementary all the way to middle schoolers, teaching creative writing, teaching art, teaching poetry. We have published Alexis before in Good Folk, um, back in the very early days of the newsletter. I will also link to that below so you can read it. But I'm going to turn it over to Alexis now to introduce herself, tell us a little bit more about who she is, the work that she does, um, and then we're going to delve into this conversation. So Alexis, over to you. Hey, everybody. Like Spencer said, my name is Alexis um, or Her Black Hand, depending on which stage I am on. I am a spoken word artist, a poet, fiction writer, essayist. I am the whole shebang. I am multidisciplinary artist, okay? I um, really enjoy spoken word. I really have been diving into that lately. It's been giving me an outlet to really talk about some interesting topics that I don't necessarily get to talk about in like more of my form writing. So right now my main title is freelancer because I'm trying to get in the freelance game, but also spoken word artist as I try and become that big title. But yeah. And you will make it big time. I have Full, full faith on that. Alexis, to anyone who has met Alexis in person, she's the kind of person that you meet and you're like, oh yeah, you're, you're going to go far. You're going to do big things. And um, I know we've all, we've all met people like that. We all know people like that. They're just, they're rare and they're special and you have to hold on to them. And Alexis is absolutely one of those. Um, one thing that I will just shout out, Alexis graduated college at what, 20 years old, which at is 19. just- at 19, at 19 years old, Alexis graduated, <laughs> um, studied creative writing at Appalachian State University and mm -hmm. is from Charlotte. Um, and I'm going to have her talk a little bit about that experience, um, her history in creative writing. So Alexis, if you want to tell us, how did you get into writing? Um, what do you think started it? I, you know, my opinion is that we're all born writers and storytellers, um, yes. but I would love to hear a little bit about how you got into this field of work. I definitely feel like I was born like a storyteller. I went through a lot of different creative, like, 
oh, I want to be when I get older. I used to want to be a songwriter. And that actually came about when I was moving to North Carolina and we were driving through like West Virginia and the radio station changed like this country station. And I was like, this may be the only genre of music that I actually sound good singing. So maybe I will be a songwriter. And then I in eighth grade had a speech writing contest and I really went all in. I was like, if I'm going to have to write this speech, memorize it, which is kind of like my introduction to spoken word art, I went all in. And then when I got to high school, I had this really young, cool, like she reminds me of me when I was a teacher, English teacher named Miss Gregory. And if you listen to this, hey girl, cause she followed me still, like we're still connected. Um, and she gave us this assignment to do an open mic for a class. And it was going through this time where I thought my heart was broken at 14. I thought my heart had been broken. And I was like, yeah. Everything at 14 seems like the biggest yes. thing ever that happens in your life, right? And it's like I you're never going to allow, never going to get past yeah. it. I thought my <laughs> life was over. And so I wrote this super deep emotional piece. And that was my first time, like, outside of the speech contest that we had done in class, that was my first time, like, performing. And after that, I was like, oh, I'm actually good at this. I'm really good at this. And so it went from, oh, I'm going to be a journalist to like, oh, I'm going to major in English. And then when I got to college, I entered college as a English secondary education major. And then quickly after my first semester of taking teaching classes, I was like, yeah, I'm not going to do that. And I ended up immediately in a classroom as soon as I graduated. So, you know, the irony. But then I ended up majoring in English creative writing. And I only had been at App State for about maybe three semesters. Yeah. I only was at App State for three semesters. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to be a writer. If I'm going to live my life, I'm not going to live it with a million and one plan Bs. I'm going to make my plan B my plan A and make it work. And so that is how I ended up being a creative writer. And now I'm in this world of trying to be a successful professional writer in the eyes of people that matter. And in that terms of the people who want to give me awards and money, because we're going to talk a lot about that, you know, but yeah. We definitely are going to talk a lot about that. Um, before we get into that, so you grew up in Ohio, right, before moving to North Carolina. And you've also written a ton um, about Black womanhood, about kind of these intersections of your identities. And I would love to know, like, growing up wanting to be a writer, how did you feel about representation, um, both at this kind of intersection of like femininity at this intersection mm -hmm. of race, at this intersection of Southerness, you know, did you feel that you identified um, with the South? I know we've talked about this a little bit. And did you feel that like, oh, I'm looking towards writers and I really can see myself in this work? Both. Or did it feel like I something like, now as I'm, I'm going to have to be the one to change the game out because more, what I want to do is more not of a done. community. But I think also there is a lot of work that can be done representation wise. And just like, the difference in storytelling, the different ways of storytelling, because a lot of people will argue that poetry is not a form of storytelling. But for me, I use poetry as my poetic vehicle. I mean, as my storytelling vehicle, you know what I'm saying? I feel like I can tell a decent story within my spoken word piece the same way that I feel like I can do it in maybe a flash piece. And so I guess now that I'm surrounding myself with other writers that I didn't have the community before, Though I feel like there is representation, I feel like there needs to be more like modern representation that steers away from like what people thought about poetry or what people thought about fiction or like nonfiction and just changing people's idea around what literature can be and usher more people into our space to allow them to experience what we experience on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And especially with poetry, yes. like I, I just did a massive unit with my students on spoken word and it's... So many people will still look down on spoken word in the literary mm -hmm. community. Um, you know, some of yeah. you know my background is in kind of the New York City literary community where spoken word is this major mm -hmm. massive force, but for a long time was this very kind of underground, right? Um, which in so many ways, I think spoken word is actually probably our most radical form of storytelling because being, mm -hmm. I, I found this a little bit with Southern literature as well. When you're already existing just by like basis right. of what you're doing outside of what is kind of socially accepted in the art world, you have the freedom to then explore more things because you don't have to yep. play by the rules. And I think poetry is a form that, especially spoken word, because it was already right. going to be kind of looked down on by some of these literary traditionalists, right? It then allowed people to really play with genre, to play with putting music in, to play with like talking about things that might not otherwise have an audience. I don't know if that's something you feel that you've experienced. 
Yes, I definitely feel that I have experienced that. And I've also, I've recently, I listened to a conversation at an event that I was at where um, spoken word poets were displaying their art, but like also have published pieces. And we talked about how in the community, like spoken word artists aren't accepted as like poets because we don't have that certain form that people who are like in taking poetry are used to. But I feel like we still have the same literary devices. We just deliver it in a way that's not our conscious voice inside of our head. We're literally telling it to you just like historical oral storytelling. When people used to pass down traditions and pass down stories, it's just in a poetic way. And sometimes lines rhyme and sound pretty and it's not a period at the end sometimes. So for me, I definitely agree that there is like a little war in between, you know, your traditional poet and being a spoken word poet. Yeah. And I love that you bring up the history of storytelling and of oral storytelling. Um, I'm a folklorist. That is what I am studying. I'm, I'm getting my yes. master's degree in folklore, looking at the history of storytelling specifically. And what is always amazing to me is that people, we, we talked about this a little bit in some of these um, podcasts, other podcasts that we've done, but the idea that storytelling mm -hmm. is A, both isolating and B, something that is purely written when really, if you go all the way back yeah. the history of storytelling is in community and it is um, out mm -hmm. loud, right? We didn't always have the ability to read and write. And that form of connection, right. anyone who has ever been to an open mic night will understand exactly what we're talking about, which is that there is something mm -hmm. special about being in a room with other people and having them say these words and hear them. And you get that in a different way than you do when you read it on a page. Yeah. Um, I am someone that like Definitely. I process everything by reading. But there is something to really be said for the way that I think spoken word and poetry and, and where we go and where we're moving with poetry kind of in the modern world really right. actually goes all the way back to how it began and what it started with. Mm -hmm. I think it's also like a good point to touch on, like what you were saying, how the effects are different. I, for me, with like when somebody's at an open mic or a spoken word, you get that immediate emotional connection. Like sometimes when you're sitting and you're reading, you have to realign over and over to understand it. But when somebody says it exactly the way that they wrote it, we don't get to have that interaction when we're isolated reading it ourselves. We actually get to have the interaction with the author. We get to kind of have a step into how they're feeling. And I think that's why I appreciate spoken word so much because it gives people a platform to talk about these gigantic things and these really personal things in a very interpersonal way so other people are also finding their connection and that's what really creates the community not only in the writing community but just in like humanity in a community when we can feel that connection to other people in those gigantic topics in those really personal topics when we can feel like we see ourselves and other people and so I feel like in spoken word that's what I get from it and like with the isolation I feel like sometimes when I read something it's a very isolated thing because I can't share this with somebody who's next to me or it's like well I can't control how they heard it or how their like inner voice read it to them but if we're all hearing it the same way it's like oh well did you feel it the same way I felt it and so I guess spoken word for me is like all about the emotions that it evokes and the emotions that spread in the audience and really just the connection that are made with like the person that's on the stage and the audience and really the connection that you build within yourself because you learn a lot about telling your own story and the way that you want it to come off. It's like you're the driver in your vehicle of how your story is presented to other people. When it's written down, everything can be misconstrued the same way text messages can be misconstrued. Mm. Yeah, I really like Spoken word. I love what you're talking about of um, spoken word and kind of the idea of community and open mic allows you to get past some of these almost gatekeeper like barriers that exist in the traditional mm -hmm. writing world. Um, one thing I find with the South, especially, you know, part of our mission here at Good Folk is very twofold because it is a encouraging people. It's actually three, right? Like there's three main steps. And number mm -hmm. one, it's like, we want to tell people who exist in communities that have not historically been given this reputation, representation, your story matters. Your story is important, right? Yeah. You can be a kid growing up like in a tiny little farm town in rural North Carolina or South Carolina, or Ohio, you know, wherever it is. Um, and your story is just as important as someone who like goes off to a major mm -hmm. city. So number one, we want to do that. Number two, we then want to equip people with the tools to actually figure out how to tell right. those stories, right? Because there's one thing in realizing, oh, I, I have something to say. And, and then there's another thing in figuring out, okay, and how am I going to learn how to say it? And number three, and I think this mm -hmm. is the most important piece of all, and this is the thing that I struggle with the most is 
getting it out there, right? Um, I worked for a little yeah, while in definitely. college. Yeah, I worked with StoryCorps for a little while, which is an amazing organization. Um, but one of the problems that we kept coming back to as a team is, all right, we're recording all these amazing stories, right? We're gathering this huge mm -hmm. database of like what it means to be human, what it means to be American, what it means to be a person right. in this world at this time. And it's just going into an archive. We like we have no way to do anything with them. And um, mm -hmm. what, good folk, what we aim to do here is actually provide a platform to tell those stories. But I find it, I, I found it really hard both the last week, the last year, the last month. And, you know, I have those tools. I've taken those classes. I know how to tell these stories. I've got the degrees and mm -hmm. I still can't get my work out there. And I'm finding it really hard right. sometimes to show up for other people and say, you know, your story is important. Your story matters. And then, then they look at me and they say, okay, yeah. And then what? And I don't have an answer for that. Right. Um, we're still, you know, <laughs> we're watching this new innovation of form and of poetry and, of genre and of people starting to realize, you know, the stories we tell about the South are wrong and we need to do better, but right. there's still like a very niche market in, in terms of getting those out there. And if you're not pitching yourself with like, here's my list of yes. identities across the board so that you can suddenly be like branded and marketable, it's really hard to tell it. Yes, uh, branded. I, yeah, I think that's a beautiful thing you touch on of like, when you go to an open mic night, right? Nobody knows what you're getting. Nobody knows who's there, mm -hmm. what identity they're at the intersection of, or what they're going to write about. You just get up on a stage and you listen. And and your work is out right. there in the world um, in a way that traditional publishing does not allow. So that's a lot of things yeah. there. Um, you're welcome. I would love for you to respond to any or all of that. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I think, um, so one, just we're going to walk backwards. Um, for the spoken word at the beginning of the year, I set a goal for myself because, you know, we we make these goals as writers to get published in this many publications or submit to this many publications a week or like reminding yourself to send a couple pitches a day. And so I made a promise to myself that I would at least go to one open mic night a week. And so I've been consistent. And so for me, that kind of feels like a submission because every week I perform something new which is forcing me to write something new, which is making me hold myself accountable and develop this like discipline that I've been lacking or like sometimes can get worn out by just like submission fatigue, rejection fatigue. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something like people tweet about, but we never have in-depth conversation. Like every time that we submit something, every time that we pitch something, every time that we put something out there, we're exposing a piece of ourselves. And once that piece gets rejected, it's kind of like, well, was the story not good? Was the content not good? What, what what made you reject it? And so after you get so many rejections, you're just like, well, what do I need to do? What character do I need to play? What face do I need to put on? Like you said, to fit in y'all's lanes of intersectionality. Mm -hmm. And so I think, I think that that is a big thing in the writer community because while we are pushing towards like this modern, like what does modern lit really look like in 2022? It's really not that modern it's really it really hasn't evolved as much as people think because we're still stuck on the forms that they teach in our textbooks we're still stuck on the ancient writers when we have so many amazing writers and even the writers who will never share anything because they don't feel like they have a space in our community that we're building and so that is definitely um something i relate to yeah that. like we're still stuck in binaries yeah, right definitely. and i tweeted something this week exactly about that where i was like the the human heart both in art and in the world only has so much resiliency, right. right? Like, and at what point do you get with projections where you just say, I can't do this anymore. Right. Like I'm just going to walk away. And I think we're in a particular cultural moment right now where look, I mean, look at everything going on in the world. Mm -hmm. There is only so much that we can take empathetically. Right. And I feel very much at my limit of I'm, I'm at my resiliency limits, right? Yeah. Like the world will tell you, oh, just be resilient. Just be resilient. Like that's the story we get, especially mm -hmm. with personal narrative. Like the story of overcoming, you know, it's, you're going to be fine. You're going to get through it. But at what point do we have to really take a step back and say, this is too much, right? Yeah. Like I feel like I'm very much at my, at my resiliency limits, mm -hmm. both in terms of like rejection fatigue, yeah. putting myself out there, but also in terms of just like life. Like I'm yeah. like, it is so hard to show up and give yourself to whatever community you're giving yourself to yeah. a day in, day out with everything going on in the world. And, and you know, um, we just had kind of the shooting in Texas this week yeah. as we're recording this. And I work in schools and I, I have to show up the next day and like be there for my students. Mm -hmm. 
and, and tell them, you know, your stories matter. Mm-hmm. Um, that is so much harder than we think it is. It is. It's so much harder. And I, not, I'm not even a teacher anymore, but like the moment I heard about it, I was like, that could have been my babies. You know, you know, I thought about my students as my own kids. And that was like my initial thought. Like, I can't imagine I protected those kids with my life when they weren't in harm's way. So I can't imagine them actually being in harm's way. But like, also, I'm not a parent. And so that makes me look at it from a different, different side. Like, I can't imagine sending my kid off to school one morning and them never coming home. And I think even with, I believe, the governor who said, like, it could have been worse. What's worse than losing your child? Mm. What's worse than trying to get into a school and the police telling you that you can't get in and you find out that your child has died? There's nothing worse than that. And so, like, that's a lot to take in and still be expected to submit and still have these happy, happy moments and still like, well, what? As an artist, you have to make, like, conscious decisions of what you want to put out, when you want to take a step back, when you need to not... I call it trauma porn because I feel like only the sad things that I put out there are the ones that do well. And I'm like, when is there going to be a space for me to share joy? Because Mm -hmm. those stories have room too. We need more of those stories, but if they're not spotlighted and shared and pushed and stuff, you know, it's hard to get people to read them. It's hard to get people to listen, especially when it's not at the top of a finger in a 30 second form of a video or something. But I believe my mission as an artist is to push the trauma porn to the side and push out more joyful narratives because we need something to look forward to. We need something so that we're not always feeling like bogged down and exhausted by what's going on around us. Cause it's, listen, it's going to take a while before it get better, but we still have to exist in the meantime of it getting better. So why not make it as pretty as we can? You know what I'm saying? Every day ain't going to be sunshines, but at least we can have something to look forward to and not feel like everything is just haywire. Yeah. I think about that a lot. Um, and I preach this very much to my friends and in this newsletter, but the idea that hope is a really radical force, yeah. um, especially going against kind of just a very unjust, very capitalist society that does mm-hmm. not actually want you to succeed and thrive and be happy, right? Like mm-hmm. if you are able to do those things, you're actually going outside of the system. And as you were speaking, I was thinking a lot about, it really is just this idea of binaries that we continue to hold ourselves to these binaries of what our work can look like, Mm. what our lives can look like, what our identities can look like, right? Um, And, you know, to go back to the idea of spoken word, it really is like suddenly you're bursting out of this binary. Mm -hmm. And I think about this a lot as a Southern writer, right? Of the world is not youth, you know, I, I write a lot about like queer joy and Southern joy and mm-hmm. learning to come home and releasing shame with that and feeling that like I can be the person that I am in the place that I'm from. Right. And I can believe that I'm going to live like a very joyous, happy life. And that feels radical in a way it that does. it probably shouldn't. That's, right. It does. And it's like, that's the story that I've been telling myself. And especially as an artist and as a writer, it's like your whole life, it's just, oh, you know, your art, if you want to make good art, it has to be serious and it has to be miserable and it has to be tragic. And, you know, I've been thinking about, uh, you know, we were talking about what's going on in Texas and the Uvalde shooting. And I was thinking, you know, I could get on here and I could tell you all the different kinds of stories about my experience with gun trauma, gun violence. Anyone in the South is going to have a story like that. That's just kind of the reality of it. And what good does that do, right? me adding that story of my trauma and my pain forces me to relive it. And it really doesn't add much to the conversation. Right. Mm -hmm. But there is this idea in storytelling work and in personal narrative work that you're going to use your experiences as a gateway into empathy. And sometimes that is valuable and sometimes that works. And at other times we have to learn how to just sit back and listen. And me going on and on about what happened to me with a gun Mm -hmm. is not going to change the fact that children are dead. Right. Right. Um, and when we talk about storytelling, we have to move past this idea that the only stories we have that matter are stories of trauma and overcoming and that they have to have these like clean wrapped up lines. And we also have to understand that when we're talking about identity and narrative and personal storytelling, things are going to look different than they might have expected, right? right? Part of what we're doing in this work is we're rewriting our cultural narratives as a country. You know, we're telling stories that the South is a diverse place. Mm -hmm. We're telling stories that there can be joy here, right? We're telling stories that 
you know, you can be an artist and you can be stable and be happy and like live a good life. You can make money as an artist, right? That's a radical thing. Um, But hope in this sense, like really, I think the biggest story we have to tell is that in in the face of so much pain and trauma and sorrow, there's a, I'm going to put it in the notes because I can't even think of it off the top of my head, but I Mm -hmm. believe it's Louise Luck who says, what, what is love? What, what's the point in writing love poems in a burning world? And Mm. Like and she that. goes on to say, the point is to present love poems to a burning mm. world, right? Um, I like give, that. Yeah. I'll, I'll put it. I'm going to, I'm sure I've messed it up. It's not the full quote. I'm going to put it in the show notes so people can read it. But the point in what we're doing is to, to bring love to a burning world, right? Mm-hmm. Like to connect with each other and to realize that we may not be able to go up against the forces of the government. We may not be able to individually tackle injustice. Right. But what we can do and what we do have the power to do is to connect with each other and to provide better representation than we had. Mm-hmm. And that's that's something that's always going to be within our power. Um, yep. Well, not always. I mean, historically, people have not always gotten equal representation, and that's still happening. That's not yeah. even a historic problem. But we do always have the ability to connect with one another and to believe in something better. And that, that feels really radical, at least in it this does. moment. It does, at least right now. And I think even on the representation and resources, I feel like there's so many writers before us. And now here we are trying to lay platforms and lay lay ground for people to come after us. And we're only 20 something. And so like, just, I just, I guess that was, that's my piece of hope. Like the legacy that I would leave behind to prepare other people in my position. You know, it's so nice to say I'm an artist. It's so nice to say I'm a writer, but it's like, I've worked really hard to even get the little publications that I have. And like deep down inside, I don't feel like I should have to work that hard. And it's like the work is nonstop, but like also nonstop and making sure that other people know that there are avenues for them to thrive. And you can, like you said, make money and, and make a life out of your art. And I think that's something that is so important for us even this podcast, giving people a platform to speak about their work, a platform to just speak, period. I think we need to have more conversation. And once we have more conversation, like what I said with community, we'll realize that we're not that much different from people and we have more in common than we think. Because if we only see the negatives or like the trauma, like we were talking about, we're going to always think that we're different when we have so much more in common than we might ever know. Mm -hmm. The art of conversation is the art of empathy. And I also think that we're not going to immediately start having conversations and get to this point where we yeah. all get along, right? Like there's going to be, there's going to be a lot of anger to work through, mm-hmm. I think. Um, but I also think storytelling is the way we work through that anger mm-hmm. because we have to be able to, we have to be able to encourage people, I think across the board from all walks of life to share their stories because otherwise you're just going to sit on them and harbor them. And that can turn into a lot of really dark feelings, right? Yeah. We do see so much of people who go out into the world and do terrible things. Like mm-hmm. so much of what they were sitting with is feelings of inadequacy and isolation mm. and loneliness yeah. and feeling like they don't matter. And that I think that's going to keep happening if we don't learn how to connect with one another. And I really don't think we're going to learn, and, and this is just my personal belief, but I really don't think we're going to do that unless yeah. we bring back storytelling as a really like, like basically ingrained communal cultural force. Yeah. Um, we don't teach the art of conversation and the art of storytelling and we don't encourage it. Um, you know, we're all sitting around on our iPhones. And yeah. I remember in college, like going into a lecture hall with people who were probably a lot like me, people mm-hmm. who I probably could have been friends with. And until the professor gets there, we all sit in silence, like yeah. on our cell phones, not even speaking to one another. And then I spent most of college feeling completely isolated and alone and like deeply depressed because yes. I was trapped in this cycle oh of isolation. Goodness. Yes. And you don't even see a way out of that, right? Um, And I do want to go back to what we were talking about with the cycle of rejection Mm -hmm. as well and this idea of rejection fatigue because I think it's the same kind of cycle of I'm going to – I feel sad because I don't have my work out there in the world or like I'm writing this stuff Mm -hmm. and it's not getting this audience. And then I'm putting myself out there, but it seems like nobody's listening. Right. Now I'm just trapped in this cycle of like, I'm mad because I can't get published and I can't Mm -hmm. get published because I feel anger. Like at what point I I feel like with writing, especially you start to get resentful of your art. Like I am angry at writing right now. And I I can admit that like the writing is pissing me off. I don't want to do it because it's making me angry that I feel like I can't get it out there. Yes. Especially especially when you see how do you work through that? I am working, learning, because it's so easy, especially artists, period, people, period. It's so easy to compare yourself 
to other people, but like writing is that art form that is like a slow moving train. Like there's no like immediate yes. It is a very rare occasion that like success is an instant yes. But then you see like, for instance, it is very hard being an artist right now because they try and label us as content creators. At least in my world, I'm not a content creator. I'm an artist and the artistry takes craft. Not saying that people don't take time to put thought into like their content. But for me, like craft and artistry is about like studying. Who are you reading? What are you listening to? What are you intaking? Who are you talking to? What conversations are you having? And not saying that those things aren't happening in the content creation world. And though I guess I do make content, I'm not a content creator. I'm an artist. And so on the other side of my 15 second TikTok, I have 15 rejection emails in my inbox waiting for me to open them and acknowledge that one, maybe my work wasn't good enough. And I have to deal with 15 more editors telling me that, well, this isn't just quite the right fit. And then watch them publish the exact same piece that I wrote in somebody else's words. And so I guess, I don't even know how you, I guess you just push at the grain. You just keep going and keep going and keep going until it works out. But like, it's exhausting. It It, it is exhausting. Nobody likes to be rejected, especially when you're putting so much into what you're doing, especially when like you feel like, well, I'm doing the right things. I'm I'm literally mirroring what people in my field are doing. Why is it not working for me? And so I guess, I don't know, giving yourself grace. I, I give myself a lot of grace because I get a lot of rejections. I get a lot of non-reply to emails. Um, but the one time I get that one email, I forget about all of those rejections that I got prior to. Or even, even for instance, last year, I got a piece published was my first ever like nonfiction personal essay type piece and at first I wasn't going to submit it and last minute I ended up submitting it and it was my first paid ever um publication and it was with Midnight and Indigo and it's called Bound to Remember and it's basically about my childhood in Cleveland Ohio because I am from Cleveland Ohio 216 but um that felt like a very small publication and then later in the year McGraw-Hill contacted me to put it in a composition book. And so those small steps that may feel very small, we never know the impact that they're going to have later on. And so I guess that's what keeps me pushing, even when I get those rejections or even when I get those sometimes redirections of like, well, maybe I'm not going to proceed with this because I want to take it from the stance of what I'm saying. And I think that comes with like having some oomph and like, well, I want to tell this story. And if I can't tell this story, then maybe we're not going to work together too. So that also plays into the cycle as well as having to like deny opportunities because you need to tell a specific story. So it's a cycle. Mm. It's a cycle. Yeah. You mentioned something about telling yourself when you get rejected. Oh, is it because the work is not good? Mm -hmm. A question I have for you. Do you think it is because, oh, the work isn't good? Or do you think it's because editors just believe there isn't an audience for it because I found that of like every single rejection I get mm -hmm. is, Oh, we love this. This is beautiful. Yes. It's so great. <laughs> I just don't know if there's an audience for it. And then yeah. I have to like think to myself again, I have to try not to get angry because it's like, what are you talking about? Yes. There's an audience for it. I'm the audience for right. it. Right. Like 16 year old me, this having the kind of, I, and not to like sound vain, but like the stuff that I am writing, I am writing it for teenage me, right. right. Who could have read that and seen a story about, an artist getting to be happy in the place that they're from. Mm -hmm. And that could have changed my life. Yeah. Right. And I'm like, maybe there's not a massive audience, right? Maybe not every, and I think part of this is your point on like content created and marketing, right? Like mm -hmm. not every art form needs to get marketed to a national and international yes. audience or brand, yes. right? Art can be made for one person yes. and it can change that one person's life and be just as meaningful. Yes. Not everything I do has to be, you know, and this goes back to our original point about like, I, I feel like there's this pressure now, like when you're writing your bio to put every single facet of your yes. identity in there. And I'm like, I don't want to reveal myself that way. I just want to be a writer sometimes. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't want to have to tell you all these things I went through and all these things I overcame to get to this mm -hmm. point because while that does have an influence on my work, it is not all of who I am. Right. Who I am is the person that got through that, not mm -hmm. the person that is going to constantly reflect and relive all of that. Sometimes I just want to put it behind me mm -hmm. and I don't want to have to package and market myself into all the little facets of like yes. my trauma and identity to be able to sell my work. 
to your um, audience. That's what the to yes. your audience because there is an audience. And this made me think. And I I tweeted about this maybe like last month or the month before. And I'm like, can somebody bring Tumblr back? Tumblr was a very the much Tumblr safe coming space. back. Tumblr now you can pay for like ad free Tumblr. My like, students who are 14 year olds, they know about Tumblr. Listen, Tumblr, I also think was very damaging for me, it, but I hope it was Tumblr very, comes back it was very dark. Iteration. It was yeah. very dark, but I, I think about all the wondrous things that will go on in Tumblr now, like, like just like people just, put in their work out there because, you know, everybody doesn't want to be published in like these journals or like magazines. And sometimes people just want a small audience to read their work. You know what I'm saying? And so like, even the conversation is a conversation going around TikTok about how like some writers who just post on like these online forums are just as big as these authors who are published by like the big four publishing houses. And I'm like, you're right. Because one, fan fiction is very hot. And two, it's something- And that there's money. There's yes, money it's that. money. Yeah. Yes. People are making like millions of dollars writing fan fiction. And while the highbrow literary world might turn their nose down at that, you might make, you're probably gonna make more money publishing on Wattpad at this point than you literally, would literally. unless you get like a movie deal. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's something that like, I guess for me as a writer, I think that's something that always makes me like focus on like why I'm writing or like who I'm writing for and keep me in a space of like, not humbleness to the point of where I can't celebrate myself, but humbleness to the point of just because it's not out there and in your face doesn't mean that it's not gold. Just because it's not flashing doesn't mean that it's not good because those things that people who aren't famous or who aren't known just because they're using it doesn't mean that it's not quality. And I think that in the writing community that that is um, a common thing that we think that like, oh, this isn't what my favorite author is doing. So I don't need to engage in that. But I'm like, but you're not your favorite author and your words are not going to be formulated the same way theirs are. And you can be building a whole nother community with one sentence in a book that they would have never thought about. So don't limit yourself trying to be somebody else because they're already here. Create your own lane and provide spaces for people. Provide the spaces for the people, your 16 year old self. Like the stuff I'm writing now, my 16 year old self needed. And I'm just like, she would be so proud of me. And I think that's what keeps me like, my hope, that's my radical hope, you know what I'm saying? Like keeps me going. Cause I'm like, somebody will read this and they will connect with it. Somebody will see this and they'll be like, wow, I thought I was alone, but I'm not. And so I guess that's who I write for. Even when I'm writing for myself, you know, sometimes it's just something amazing that came out of a journal prompt. But like, for me, it's like, somebody going to see this, regardless of if yeah. it's your audience, somebody's going to see it. That was going to be my next question to you of, of who would you say your audience is? You know, if you had to think about, and not, not in terms of like a marketing publishing mm -hmm. world of like, oh, who, who is this book? Who's going to buy this book? Cause yeah. in, if you've ever queried a novel, many of you will, if, well, maybe not many of you, but if you've ever queried a novel, you will know that when you pitch a book, they ask you, related. A, a lot of agents will ask you, well, who's going to buy this book, right? Mm -hmm. Who is your audience? And I think I've listed so many random things of like girls who watch too many tarot readings yes. on TikTok, right? Like that's my audience <laughs> of like the people who get those like videos on TikTok and it's like something good is yes. coming to you. And then they latch all their hopes onto it. Yeah, yeah. Right. But who is your audience? I feel like. Or the I audience have... that you want to write to. I want to write to the black woman, but the black woman in her early twenties, at least right now, that's who I'm writing for. And so I, um, I say that I am the in-between of YA and adult fiction, because sometimes it doesn't mm. feel like I'm an adult, even though I am an adult and paying all these bills. Like, I feel like I'm in the in-between of being a teenager and being a full-blown adult. And we don't have enough stories of like the healing that we have to do from our childhood traumas or like the things that we're learning that we weren't taught or some of the things that we're working through relationship-wise, friendship-wise, self-work. Like, I feel like those stories don't have space in a lot of genres because they kind of just get muddled into like a chapter instead of an entire novel. And even that's why I write for, I feel like I write for the 20 somethings figuring it out because somebody is going to read this when they're 20 something and be like, okay, I'm going to figure it out. They're going to see that, see themselves in the words in spaces that I feel like I haven't yet found in literature about myself written by somebody who was my age, who looks like me. So I'm, I'm writing for the black girl who is figuring it out that didn't have any blueprints and who is creating the blueprint and the guide to figuring it out and living her most fruitful life. That's who I'm writing. I love that. And you're right. There's so, 
we have this weird thing in America where we like glorify being a teenager mm -hmm. and then we skip over like 10 years <laughs> and then it's like we glorify like getting married and having children yes. and then you realize too when you get into your 20s most of the stories about being a teenager were actually really more just like stories about stuff that happens in your 20s yep um, and there's no guidebook for that. You feel very unmoored. It is so. But I want to I want to delve in a little further to your point on representation, mm -hmm. which is that did you feel you know in the work that you were exposed to that you were represented? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I okay. So let me tell y'all a story. It was my second to last semester at App State. And it was our WID class, the class that every English major has to take, no matter your concentration, no matter your discipline. And there was not one Black person on the syllabus, not a Hispanic person, not a purple person. Like, it was all old white women. And we had to write a research paper on Jane Austen because, you know, English professors love Jane Austen and not saying the girly isn't great. This but, might be controversial. I'm right. not a Jane Austen fan. Yeah, that's, that's, saying, as a bonus, that's my hot take. I'm not a Jane Austen fan. Listen, Austin. not saying the girl isn't great, but she was not great for me. And so I wrote my research paper on Nikki Giovanni and the Black Arts Movement. Oh. And um, I about failed that class for doing that. But for me, she was asking, basically the research paper was about how you saw yourself in this piece of literature. And when I responded, I don't see myself in this piece of literature. It was unaccepted. It wasn't, it wasn't gradable. It wasn't the assignment, but this is how I see myself in literature. So it really wasn't until I became a teacher where I had to make all these different lessons. And I was like, well, when I was in school, what did I want? Even though I was teaching elementary school kids, I still had the opportunity to pull some titles and pull some work that I know that they're teachers because it was only like two black teachers in the entire school and the principal. But like, I knew that they weren't going to be exposed to. And I think that I could connect with them, showing them like your stories, because most of the stories that they showed were like trauma and harsh. And I'm like, your life is so much more than that. And working in rural North Carolina, I think that's a big thing when I was a teacher to just show them that their life is so much more than where they are. A lot of them are living in very like impoverished neighborhoods, their lack of resources. And so for me, if I, I know that when I was living there, I just wanted somebody to tell me that you're so much bigger than this. You can, you can go wherever you want to go. You can do whatever you want to do. And for me, providing them with different pieces of literature, whether it, whether it was a video whether it was a film, whether it was a poem, like providing them with spaces where they could see themselves being grander than the space that they were. It really like helped me find different writers, find different artists to connect with. And I guess teaching provided me with the space to explore when I didn't have any space within my curriculum as a student. Mm. And so I guess that's where I really found my representation. And that's really when I got into like, the Black arts movement are just like, even even Black writers who published under white like names, I really got into that. And so I guess right now, I just, I just want people to know that you can do this. Cause like, I don't know too many like 21 year old Black writers who are out here, you know, doing it, you know what I'm saying? And so yes, representation is um, lacking. And, you know, we recycle in schools, we recycle the same titles, we recycle the same stories. Our parents read the same books that we read. They probably read the same books that their parents read. And like, it's a cycle of education, but it's also a cycle of miseducation. Mm. So, yeah. yeah, I think about that often where I it was something I had a whole conversation with my students about is, you know, you're not sometimes when you're doing something different, there's this feeling that you're the first one to do it. Yeah. Right. Like you're saying, you know, Oh, I'm like the first 21 year old black writer to like have this list of publications. But the reality is when you start digging into this history, mm -hmm. it, it's not that we're always the first ones to do it. It's that people have been doing it and the world was not listening. Right. Yes. Those stories were not getting told. Yes. Um, I think about that very much from like a Southern perspective of, I am absolutely not the first one to be doing the kind of work that I'm doing. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it might feel like that. And that's a fault of education and representation and history because I didn't get to see those stories. And therefore I was told there's no market for this. Right. Nobody cares, right? Like it's ungradable. You know, we can't tell this story. And when you start getting into the history of places and people and stories, you realize this has been going on 
for a long time. Yeah. And there's this, I mean, there's so much of history that's just been lost. Mm -hmm. um, and I do think like as an educator, that's been one of the most like joyous and exciting parts for me is rewriting that curriculum in a way that feels representative. Mm -hmm. um, or, you know, I'm sure it's not perfect, but it's at least moving in the right direction. And it's getting to show my students, you know, we're talking about mythology. And instead of just yeah. talking about Greek mythology, it's like, all right, let's take a look at like African mythology right. and Norse mythology and all of these different kinds of things and branch out from this curriculum that you're getting where mm -hmm. there's one way to do something. And again, this goes back to what we we're talking about earlier with the idea of binaries, mm -hmm. right? And art forces us to look beyond binaries yeah. because when we refuse as artists, you know, I could have stayed in New York City and forgotten about being Southern yeah. and fit very neatly and nicely into the publishing world and just yes. kept writing about my depression and overcoming that. And mm -hmm. I probably could have sold that and be making a lot more money than I am now. Yeah. I would have been playing by somebody else's binary, right? Mm -hmm. I would have been playing into somebody else's idea of what it could look like to be an artist and to be a person. Mm -hmm. It's automatically by showing up as you are and refusing to play into somebody else's expectation, you're challenging the system. Mm -hmm. That's where people get afraid of art. Yeah. And I also think that means you're creating something really good. I was going to say, because they think because art should get not too big. Like right. Yeah. I definitely agree. I think once they see that people don't fit into these tiny boxes that they have set aside for those kind of artists, I think they get afraid that they won't know what to do with it when it does get a lot of attention and they do find the audience because they're like, well, we've never done this. And if it does good, we'll be ill-prepared. I think that's what it is because you don't know if you have an audience for something until you test it out. So why not use me to test it out? Because it's a mm. win, you know what I'm saying? Like you can test out this new genre, this new mix of genres, you know, because, you know, the girlies is mixing genres. We're writing a little bit of everything in one take. Um, but I think, yeah. But I think also sometimes being a professional artist or like a full-time artist, though we want to step out of those binaries, sometimes we have to step back into them so that we can have a place in the room. And so like, even when you read my bio, like, oh, I'm a lifestyle culture writer, but what does that mean? That's a big mm -hmm. umbrella term. What does that mean? Because I write about a lot of things. I just wrote a poem and submitted it about Trader Joe's. Cause I ain't bought myself flowers in a long time. And I felt like it was a masterpiece. I thought it was literary perfection. It got rejected, but it was cause, well, where does my poem about Trader Joe's fit? Cause that's my lifestyle. And so for some that may not be lifestyle, you know what I'm saying? And so like, it's a give or take win and lose type of thing sometimes. Yeah. You got to learn the rules so you can break the rules. Yes, definitely that. That's like learning the form so you can break the form. I took a class with Kalisa Ray. If you have not read her stuff, go get her book. Um, Ghost in the Black Girl's Throat. She is a Southern writer and she talks about being a Black girl in the South perfectly. If you have not read that, Spencer, you should read it. It's the bomb. We, and we will link that. We will link that below. I have not read it. Um, I am slowly. One thing that is really, and, and speaking of this idea of like rewriting a curriculum is I never read Southern writers until I left the South because mm. I didn't think there was any future for me here. And therefore I, I had so little exposure to it anyway. And then I said, well, I'm leaving here. So what's the point, right? Mm -hmm. Why do I have to read these authors? And now as I've come back, I feel like first I had to work through like the weird shame of being back. And, and I'm not even like from where I currently live, but mm -hmm. even just being back in the region, like feels like you failed somehow. Yes. Um, we talked about this in a little bit, Victoria and I in our podcast, and, and we will touch on this probably in every good folk podcast, because I think it's a huge, it's a huge part of this work um, mm -hmm. is releasing that shame, but also then realizing, okay. Who is my new, like, you know, I, I don't even like the idea of having a canon of writers, but it's like, if you're going to have your personal canon, right? Yeah. And I'm going to have my, like, list of five books that I think everybody needs to read, mm -hmm. you know? Who who would you say? You know, this, and this, I'm totally catching you off guard with this. Listen. If you had to choose, like, if you had to choose your canon, who are some of the people that would be on it? Top, because it's my girl, Nikki Giovanni. If your first book yeah. you ever amazing, read by amazing. Nikki Giovanni, get a good cry. I think that's a great starter book. It's one of her most recent books. Um, and like, you know, I'm a spoken word artist. So if you're really into like conversational politics and really addressing things head on and wanting them to be digestible so that you understand, poet Nicholas Corman, he's everywhere in DC poetry. He's amazing. Even with like your most current events, he's on them, digestible. 
you understand them, but you also feel like you're keeping up with everything going around. I think also I've been really into um, Audre Lorde lately. She does the radical self-care if you never heard of her, but she also talks a lot about being a woman in relationships with her mother. And that's something that I'm dealing with now as I branch off and become like my own woman and like dealing with, like I said, childhood trauma and things like that. Myself, I think if I don't include myself in this list, I'll be doing myself a disservice because I work really hard. And while you may not know my name right now, trust and believe one day you will know my name and your kids will know my name and I will be a household name, self-made. You know what I'm saying? And I think- Oh yeah. Like I said at the very beginning, Alexis is the kind of person that you meet and you're just like, I'm glad I know you. (laughs) Because in 50 years, people are going to want to know you. Yes. They are going to know you. Yeah. I think another one for me, especially, you know, I told you I'm writing for the the 20 something figuring it out. For me, the start of me figuring it out was Jasmine Manns. I initially um, was introduced to her on YouTube and now she wrote this amazing book, Black Girl Call Home. And I've gotten to work with her. Listen, she's gotten to work with her in in one of my other jobs. We had a writing salon (sighs) with her. I will link it. Um, Actually, I don't know if we have the recording, but she is amazing. Yes. And she is so well. I have taken a class with her and I have learned so much in that class. And so if I could learn that much in like 45 minutes, like, girl, I don't even want to know what you learned. Oh, I'm so jealous. (laughs) Yes. But yes, I love Jasmine Man because she, for me, she is my introduction of storytelling in poetry. Um, if you get her book or even Instagram on her snippets, like you see that she uses poetry as her vehicle into storytelling and she takes on some really heavy, really heavy stories and her poems and her visuals that she's put out recently. Um, and so I think when you say like top five writers, my writers are also multidisciplinary. I think um, that you gravitate towards like people like you. And so like the writers that I love are like artists in the word artists. I always say I'm an artist because I like to dibble and dabble and like everything because like one day I'll be a singer and then like next day I'll be like a digital creator or like, you know, and today I'll be And you're going to be in a film? Oh yeah, right? I'm going to be in a film, film yeah. I guess actress and oh, I'm also a set designer because I just dressed my first two sets. That's, you know, and I'm going to be on the little, uh, when you Google the actor's names, my face will pop up. Oh, so. you're going to be on IMVD? Yes, girl. You're going to be on page? Yes, I'm Look so at her excited. go. She's going to be famous, y'all. I'm so excited. <laughs> but really it is, again, like this idea that you do not have to be any one thing, right? You do not have to fit yourself into these neat little slots of identity in order to become reputable and marketable and sellable, <laughs> right? Like our job, that's, I mean, that's just part of, what we believe under a capitalist system and working as an artist under capitalism is a very strange thing because we are, we become our product in a lot of ways. Right. Um, even sometimes with this newsletter, it's like, I feel uncomfortable being like the face of good folk because the whole idea is it's not about me. It's me using the resources that I have to create a platform for more stories to be yes. told. But I do not ever want to become like the face of the new South because I am not the face of the new South, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I, I mean, you can't see me on the screen, but I'm a blonde white girl. <laughs> I'm everywhere in the South, right? Like I've been, I've, my story has been told. Yeah. this My story is not the story that deserves to get told right now. And it's not the story that should be taking up space. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just moving past mm-hmm. this idea that you have to be any one thing. And also that places have to be any one mm-hmm. thing, right? Yeah. Um, People are always very surprised when we talk about, I say this a lot, I've worked in classrooms, I mean, around the world in, in major cities. You right. know, I've, I've worked in schools with, with students in San Francisco, in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had the opportunity to work in schools in other countries. My classroom in rural North Carolina is by far the most diverse classroom I've ever taught in. Mm-hmm. People are surprised when I say that to them. And um I think that comes down to like, we have these narratives of ourselves and we also have these narratives of place, right? Yeah. And even with the commodification and this idea of capitalism, like those narratives sell. There's a reason that everybody believes that the South and Appalachia is a monolith, right? Like you're from Ohio. Yes. Ohio, and you can talk about this. Ohio and North Carolina, very different places. Polar opposite. And yet, thanks to, you know, people like JD, I don't even want to say his name, people like JD Vance and Hillbilly Elegy, we have this idea now that 
Appalachia, which which runs all the way from like Georgia to New York, yes. is one place. And also that Appalachia is the same as the South and mm-hmm. that all Southern states and all Southern places are all the same. Yeah. Like nobody's going to assume New York is like LA. Mm-hmm. So why are we assuming that, you know, Texas is like Oklahoma and yeah. that Cal- um, Car- like the Carolinas are going to be just like Georgia. Right. All of these places are diverse and all of these places have so many different individual stories that, mm-hmm. you know, it sells really nicely when this country can package and commodify an entire region into, oh, that's all Appalachia, right? That's all poor. That's all white. That's all conservative. Yeah. And that's not true. And that does a disservice. You know, some people, they leave and they get out and that's what's best for them. Mm-hmm. But not everybody wants to or right. has the opportunity to. Or has the and this narrative this. that we put out of this, yeah, this like binary of like we have urban, rural, suburban, and that's the entire makeup of this, of this country. That yeah. really does a disservice to the people who've chosen to stay um, and who are here yeah. and who are doing this work on the ground. But again, like those untold histories are doing it with little thanks, little appreciation and little to no recognition. Mm-hmm. I agree. And that, that brings me back to what you were saying about um, like when you return home and feeling like this sense of like failure. So like I'm from Cleveland, Ohio, and this also plays into like the work that I intake and like digest within my own personal life, my own personal artistry, being from Cleveland, Ohio, well, at least from where I'm from, not a lot of great things came like out of Cleveland. And so when I think about Cleveland, I'm thinking like, I'm never going back there. Like I'm trying to figure out a way so that I never have to go back because what I associate with Cleveland, Ohio is not what I envision for my life right now. And so, and it's odd that my first like professionally published piece was only about Cleveland, Ohio. And so that has made me look deeper into like, what are the things that I'm pushing to the side that I don't think are amazing and making them amazing because they deserve as much spotlight as the things that immediately come to mind when I sit down to write. And I think that um, I've learned that a lot of my favorite writers are from somewhere in Ohio. And that makes me feel a sense of pride that moving to North Carolina has made me forget. And so like, you know, they be like 704, throw up the fours. And I'm just like, well, I'm from Ohio, 216. And it's like, I had, I came with so much pride that was accepted while I was in Ohio. But over over the years and over time, it has kind of like just been pushed to the back because it didn't have place in my life. It didn't have room to be celebrated. And so now I'm kind of figuring out how I can make room for all of these new identities that have come since moving to the South, but also honoring the ones of my hometown, my home state, my family who are there, the stories that I kind of left behind when I came here. And so I'm glad that you brought that up because that's definitely something that is influencing like my writing right now and like the direction that I'm trying to take like different projects. Yeah. And it really is like, I, I have an essay that I'm pitching out right now. So if anyone's interested in it, you know, hit me up. Um, but it, it looks a lot into like concepts of metro normativity and um, rural queerness. And mm-hmm. I have a line in there where I was thinking like, I thought for so long I would have to leave this place behind, like right. entirely erase it from my identity in order to become who I was. Mm-hmm. And what I realized is I, I can't, you know, in order to learn how to love myself, I also have to learn how to love all the places that made me. Right. I, like, I can't separate myself from these places because these places made me who I am. Right. right. And I had the same experience with North Carolina where, you know, some of the first big pieces I ever started, like I, the first big piece I ever won an award for was about like my teenage years. And I grew up in between North and South Carolina. Mm-hmm. And It was about my like teenage years doing that. And I remember when I first sat down to write that piece, I was like sitting in a Starbucks on um, 109th Street up in New York City and it was cold and it was raining. And I started writing about just like suburban America and like small town South. And I was like, this is so weird. Like I'm never going to do anything with this piece and end up winning like the biggest award I've ever won for it. Um, You can't separate yourself. And by extension, you know, if you look at your work as an extension of yourself, you can't separate it from these places because these places are what make you who you are. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, I I think often part of my whole life ethos philosophy comes from the band, the Ava brothers, um, who are from Concord, North Carolina. It's two brothers, if you don't know them. And they did a whole documentary with um, a producer named Rick Rubin Mm -hmm. of Death Row Records. And it came out 
I don't even know, like a few years ago. And I remember I watched it with my mom when I was home for winter break one year. Mm -hmm. And the whole documentary is them talking about, you know, growing up, they wanted to be musicians. And so they thought they had to become like rock musicians because that was what they could sell it as. And they went to New York and they did all this stuff and they weren't making it right. They were Mm -hmm. like, we weren't, we weren't succeeding because we weren't being true to who we were. And they had a line that like completely changed my life because they said something of like, we realized that we couldn't run from being Southern. And so we might as well lean into it. And they said, once they did that, they like changed their work and started leaning, you know, this brings us really back nicely to where we started with the idea of like country music Mm -hmm. and, you know, telling a story (laughs) through your songs. Cause they said they started leaning into their roots and then they started finding that success because if if your work is going to be true and honest to yourself, it also has to be true and honest to the places that make you up, whether you love them or hate them. Right. You can be writing about how you hate that place, but it's still a place that makes yeah. it. Yeah. It has contributed yeah. to that opinion that you're writing about. Yeah. Yep. I think that that brings us pretty pretty nicely back to where yeah, we started like on this circle. idea of music. Yeah, full circle. I mean, I could talk to Alexis for hours. <laughs> I'm sure we will have her back on the podcast, you know, to continue to talk about these things. Her time is gonna get very booked up, so I better book her out years Listen, in advance now. Speak it into existence. <laughs> Speak it into, into existence. existence. Tomorrow I'm getting that email, Spencer. Yes. Um, <laughs> for those of you who do not know me in real life, um, you know, those who do know me in real life know that I have this thing. And actually this made it into the very first chapter of my novel that I'm currently pitching out um, because it is such a, it is such a core ethos of my life. But there's a thing that I joke about with my friends where I say, you know, if you're a creative person, one email can change your life. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I have this little ritual where every morning and ever or every night, I look at myself in the mirror and I say, or every morning I look at myself and I say, today's the day you get that email. Mm-hmm. And if it hasn't happened, then I tell myself at night, you know, tomorrow is the day you get that email. Yep. And one day it is going to be true. Cause one day you're going to get that email. Um, and I did that's uh, in the very first page of the scene of um, the book that I wrote in the new draft, the character is looking at herself in the mirror and she's saying, you know, today is going to be the day your life yep. changes. You know, tomorrow is going to be the day your life changes. Of course, that turns into um, her mother disappearing <laughs> and kind of getting <laughs> getting sucked up into a cult by a man who lives in a pine tree. It's a lot. If you're yeah. interested, you can email me. Listen, um, but that is there is yeah. an audience for it. There is an audience there is an audience for it, for it right? If you, yeah, here's my official pitch, um, my elevator pitch. If you were interested <laughs> in a story about the redemptive power of rural queer love and finding yourself in the places that made you backdropped against a very funky cult led by a man who only seems to appear in dreams and the damaging effects of TikTok tarot and social media mm-hmm. weaving our way into our subconscious and how these kind of underground movements thrive on those platforms. Email me. Hit her up. It's a mouthful. I, yeah. Hit me up. Um, there is an audience for it. Even if the audience is just me. There is an audience for it. <laughs> but, <laughs> so Alexis. To get back to our conversation, we do yes. ask at the end of every podcast, we like to ask our guests, um, because, you know, a good folk, part of what we are about is rewriting these narratives. Mm-hmm. So we like to ask our guests what it is that they believe in. I believe and you can take that any way you would like. I believe in dreams. I think everybody should have a dream and then magnify it, make it bigger. I think dreams are what keep us moving when we have our bad days, when we have our bad moments. Dreams are what propel us into that next great thing, even if it felt like it took forever to get there. I am a big dreamer. A lot of my dreams I know will never come true, but they make me feel good. And so I guess I believe in dreams and doing more things that make you feel good because this we only get one life. There's no right or wrong way or how to do it. Just make sure that it feels good to you and forget how it looks to others. There is power in dreaming yourself into what you want to be true. Yes. I do believe that. Yeah. That's actually, speaking of dreams and this book, a lot of that is about this idea of like things happening in dreams and then happening in real life. Mm -hmm. Um, There is power to your dreams. And I just so appreciate the work that you do as, as a person, as a poet, as a teacher, as an individual, as a writer, um, in encouraging people to believe in those dreams yes. and, and giving people the ability to see themselves represented in those dreams. Thank you. Um, Cause it's so important. And, and I know you know that, but it is it's nice to hear. so Thank beautiful you. to watch. 
yeah, it's always nice to hear, right? But I know that the impact your work is going to have is just going to be massive. And I'm very lucky to get to know you and to have you as a friend of good folk, long time, um, and yes. on this podcast. Thank There's a so lot of much. wisdom in this conversation. I definitely will be listening back to this, and I'm sure many of you will be as well. Me too, because this is my first podcast I'm ever featured on. I'm telling you, make your community and make it strong with the people around you. Yeah. And and if you're someone who you might feel at a moment when you're listening to this that you don't have that community, and, and I have been there and I understand that, and yes. I still have times where I feel like I don't have that community. And if you are listening and you're feeling that way, you know, what we're doing here is we're creating that community. Um, I know that rural artistry can often feel really isolating and it yes. can feel like you're going at it alone because you haven't gotten those histories. So we are trying to bring together a new community and, and to create, you know, a new group um, to give people a space to explore and think about these things and not fit into these binaries. We're going to be doing workshops. Um, we're going to be trying to have events. We are going to be, uh, and I, I'll announce this early, I'm working on setting up a group like chat platform so okay. people can connect with one another and meet one another. But if you are listening and you're like, I want that kind of community, I think that's so important. You know, we'll be that community for you. Yes, we will. Um, Always. Up anytime. Yeah. Yes. And you can find Alexis um, again on Instagram at her black hand. We will share all of that in the show notes. Definitely. You're going to want to give her a follow and stay tuned. Um, I'll link all of her work so that you can find it, but she posts very regularly and posts lots of amazing things and lots of amazing resources. So you're definitely going to want to give her a follow. Thank you. <laughs> and with that, I will sign off and say thank you all for listening. Thank you all for reading and subscribing and supporting this. Um, we love you always. And here is to a different story in the future. 